Our goal with Redemptive Edge is actually to uh, push the cultural moment and conversations and where uh, we believe our church needs to go and also an opportunity for us all to learn and to bring in subject matter experts to talk about uh, these issues. And so it is our joy to have Patty Pell with us. She is the Assistant Professor of Cultural Engagement at Denver Seminary. Uh, she is uh, currently getting her PhD at Trinity College in the UK. Uh, she's been in a variety of ministry positions with various campus ministries, uh, but also led a church planting team that established an immigrant and refugee congregation in Greeley. I think that's when Juan and I met her. How many years ago was that, Patty? Oh, it's been a long time. I have no it idea. It must be a decade, I think. <laughs> I think since so. Since we uh, went up to Greeley there. Uh, and presently serves on the preaching team at Cornerstone Community Church. Uh, she's also written three books, one on Esther, one on hospitality, and one on motherhood, as well as several commentary guides for N.T. Wright's uh, commentary series. So she's uh, well-versed in uh, biblical doctrine, especially around this issue of justice. And when we were talking through speakers, uh, Patty was one that we wanted to come, not just because of um, all that she brings to the table uh, with the academy, but also the fact that she lives it out and has lived it out in a community in our state. So it is our honor. Let's let's welcome Patty Pell. Thank you. I do have to say it's a little intimidating to know that you can ask questions on your phone during the sermon. So if I see you doing this, I'll think, what did I say? Well, thank you for having me. Um, it really is a privilege to be here. So thank you for that. Why is this night different than all others? On all other nights, we eat leavened and unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only matzah? On all other nights, we eat vegetables of all kinds. Why on this night must we eat bitter herbs? On all other nights, we do not dip vegetables even once. Why on this night do we dip greens into salt water and bitter herbs into sweet Set. These are the four questions that are asked on the night of Passover in a Jewish home. The questions hold together the meaning of the story of the Exodus. The rescue of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt is told in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And families recite the story every year as they are commanded to by God in order to remind themselves of who they are. This remembrance is crucial because it is the most defining experience in Israel's history. The story of God's liberation is remembered, it is celebrated, it's shared throughout the Old and the New Testament. References to the Exodus story can be found in all the different genres of literature in Scripture. The story gives meaning to the individual and the corporate lives of the people of God because stories do that. So often it is stories that provide meaning and structure to our lives, to our relationships, to our vocations. I mean, think about the stories that are told over and over again in different contexts in your life. We have a children's book um, about adoption because one of our three children is adopted, and the statement that runs throughout this picture book is, tell me again about the night I was born Tell me again about how this happened or this happened. 
Maybe it's the story of your birth that gets told over and over in your family. Maybe it's the story of some other defining event in your family that gets told ad nauseum at family gatherings or celebrations. Other defining stories might be the founding of the family business or the story of how your grandparents met one another and got married. I venture to guess that you hear the founding stories of this church over and over as it is recounted, maybe celebrations or anniversaries or when the pastoral staff is casting vision for something and you hear the story again and again. Sometimes our defining stories are actually stories of suffering and pain, and we tell these stories in order to explain who we are and how we have been shaped. Stories shape the way that we think and understand. They shape what we know, and they also shape how we know. And I want to suggest this morning that the beauty of biblical justice must be understood through the lens of story, through the Exodus story, the story that gives meaning and definition to biblical justice, the story of God's rescue of his people. So the Exodus is the first experience that the nation of Israel has with God, not individuals like the stories of the patriarchs, but the first experience that the people as a nation have of God, and it gives context and meaning and texture to their understanding of God and to their understanding of justice. And as Christians, we've been grafted into the people of God, and so this story is our story, and it should shape us and give meaning to our faith and our understanding of justice as well. So this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, not because justice isn't found in the New Testament, as evidenced on your wall, um, but because the Exodus story, I think, is the pattern, is the framework for justice that runs throughout all of Scripture. And it's important to understand this story in order to understand Christ's work of holistic redemption and the work of justice. I think you know the story, but you heard it recounted a little bit in the song of Miriam, Moses' sister, as was read in the scripture reading this morning. And the beautiful story of God rescuing Israel from Pharaoh out through Egypt and through the Red Sea shaped Israel's theology. The Exodus formed what Israel knew about God, but it was not just head knowledge, things they thought or statements about God. They knew God because they experienced him in their rescue and their redemption. What they believed and thought and trusted about God was born out of this experience, this spectacular event. So what exactly did they know about God? from this experience, from this story? Who exactly did they experience God to be in the Exodus story? Well, there are four things that I want to talk about, and then we'll look at those four things again as the implications of how Israel was to live. The first thing that Israel knew and experienced about God was that he is the creator. He went head to head with the gods of Egypt in the plagues, And he showed himself more powerful, more majestic, more mighty 
than all other gods. He displayed his power over the elements of creation in the plague, over water, over blood, animals, sickness, even life and death. So when compared to every other god that was worshipped in Egypt, Yahweh triumphed. Israel experienced God as the creator of all things and the one who has power over all things. And this knowledge, not just head knowledge, but experiential knowledge, burrowed deep into their collective identity. The one who called them his people was the creator of all and held the power over all. The second and third things they knew about God that was shaped through the Exodus experience was that their God was just and their God was merciful. In Exodus 3, I almost forgot that I have these. Okay. Um, Exodus 3, verses 7 through 9. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord spoke these words to Moses when he called him at the burning bush, and then he fulfilled them later when he rescued the Israelites from slavery. God heard the cries of those who were being oppressed. God heard the cries of those who were suffering. Now let's think about the Israelites for a minute. The Israelites were facing injustice and oppression in every realm of life, every realm of life. They were physically oppressed the physical labor required of them in their slavery. Their bodies were not their own. Their energy and efforts and physical exertion were exploited for the benefit of Pharaoh and his empire. Their very physical lives were threatened, and eventually their male babies were murdered. The Israelites were oppressed emotionally, too. They had no agency. They couldn't determine anything about their lives. They couldn't make any changes about their situation. Pharaoh and the empire of Egypt controlled them. And a lack of agency brings despair in people's lives. That's emotional oppression. The Israelites were oppressed economically as well. The fruits of their labor were exploited and used for the benefit of others, but not for themselves. They didn't share in the wealth or the economic participation or productivity to which they contributed. Economic oppression. And the Israelites were oppressed spiritually. They couldn't worship Yahweh in the way that they wanted. In fact, the request from Moses to Pharaoh is, let my people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship the way that they want. The Israelites were surrounded by the rituals and the gods of Egypt. And during this time of their enslavement, God was silent. God was silent. As a people, Israel had not heard from God in over 400 years. Spiritual oppression. In every way that a people could be oppressed, they were. In every way in which a people could be mired in injustice, they were. And so they cried out. In their misery, they groaned. The tears and their screams of pain rose to the Lord, and he responds. God responded to the suffering 
And he didn't just comfort his people in their suffering and oppression. He acted. He delivered. He rescued. He redeemed his people from the situation in which they were enslaved, from every realm of oppression. See, God showed himself as a God of justice when he rescued Israel from the context of their oppression and delivered them to a place of freedom. God cares about the situation in which his people are mired. He cares about the people, the systems, the spirituality, and the practices that were exploiting them. And he responds to the cries of injustice. When God acts on their behalf to deliver them, they know him experientially as a God of justice who responds to their cries. Israel knew God as the creator and as a just God, but they also experienced his mercy. God's mercy, his heart of love, is what generates his justice. The theologian Stephen Mott says, love motivates justice and justice completes love. God's mercy motivated his response to the cries of Israel and his justice completed, fulfilled his love. Because he loves, because of his mercy, he acts to deliver his people from oppression and injustice, from exploitation and spiritual despair. Because of the Exodus experience, Israel knew God as the creator and that he is merciful and just. And finally, they know that God is a God of abundance. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, describes the Exodus as a movement from scarcity to abundance to neighborliness. God's rescue has a direction. It is not just from oppression. It is also to freedom and abundance. The promised land is painted as a picture of abundance, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land First of all, a place, a context where Israel will have agency. It's a land, a place where Israel will labor and they will get to benefit from the fruits of their labor and not be exploited by Pharaoh. It's a place where they can enjoy their work and their freedom and their God and one another. What makes this night different from all other nights? Well, this is the night when we were rescued from scarcity and oppression, from exploitation, pain and suffering, from spiritual confinement and delivered to freedom and abundance, to agency and hope, to flourishing and community. This is the night where we became the people of God, not just individuals. This is the night that changed who we were and who we were becoming. This is the night when we knew God, the God of creation, of mercy, of justice, and abundance. In the book that we um, used to read our son, we told the story to give meaning and explanation for why we are a family and what it means to be the Pell family, even though not all of the children entered into our family the same way. We told the story to explain who we were, to in essence say, we are who we are because of this story. And we live in this way because of this story. 
the Exodus story is the same. It recounts the faithfulness of God, but it also gives meaning to the rest of Israel's history. It is Israel's way of saying, we are who we are and we live the way that we live because of this story. The beautiful story of justice and mercy, of creation and abundance is a story of theology, what Israel believed about God but it is also a story that explains how they were to live because our theology flows into the way we treat people and it flows into the way that we view and use our resources and organize our common life. Our theology affects the way we steward life. The Exodus story shaped how Israel understood how they were to organize their life. In Exodus 19, God gives the nation a mission. He says, you are to be a holy nation, meaning you are to reflect me, the God of creation, justice, mercy, and abundance, in the middle of the other nations. And they were also to organize their common life in ways that protected and preserved all the freedoms that God had given them in the Exodus. Holy nation, reflect me, and protect and preserve what I have given you. If they were to be a holy nation and reflect God and protect the freedoms they were given, what did that look like practically? How did it get lived out in their lives? Well, the books of Old Testament law actually tell us. They actually give us a picture of what God expected Israel to live like, their common life, and it mirrors those four character, characteristics we've been looking at. Israel's understanding of God as a God of creation meant two things in their common life, divine ownership and divine gift, according to Christopher Wright. Divine ownership and divine gift. God owned all of creation, and that included the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, to the Lord your God, sorry, to the Lord your God, I forget these. I, <laughs> I get going, so I apologize if they, they never actually come up. Um, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Everything, God owns everything, but God also gifted the land, gifted the resources to Israel so that they could steward them well. They were given a place to live out their freedom, a total contrast from the lack of ownership or agency they had under Pharaoh in Egypt. But the expectation was that Israel took that gift and used it responsibly for the benefit of the community. God gave Israel laws and commands that protected the land and protected access to the land, those resources, so that they could be used for flourishing of everyone, for all. For instance, every family, clan, tribe got a plot of land that was proportionate to the number of people. They didn't all receive the same amount of land. They received the amount they needed for the people in their family, clan, or tribe, so that everyone have, would have access to the main means of production in an agrarian society, a livelihood. The gleaning laws 
are a beautiful picture, I think, of how the resource of land was to be stewarded for the benefit of others. And I'm kind of an Old Testament law geek, and so I love the gleaning laws. So Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 22 says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. See, the owner of the land harvested the field or the vineyard um, one time to gather all that was needed. And they were forbidden to go back again to get every last bit of harvest. Why? I mean, it was their land. Because there were people in the community, vulnerable people, who were struggling and who needed care. And the excess grain and, and olives and grapes belonged to them. Christopher Wright again, he says that the translation leave them for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow actually is more accurately translated from the Hebrew as it belongs to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. It belongs to them. The resource of the land and what the land produced was not for the property owner alone, but it was to be used to make sure everyone flourished. Everyone was included. The most vulnerable people in the community who had no access to the land were to be taken care of. God, as the creator and the divine owner of all resources, gave those resources generously with the expectation that they would be stewarded for the benefit of everyone. In this way, their freedom for agency and economic participation was protected, preserved. Verse 22 reminds them of that. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Remember when you were slaves and you had no resources, no access to economic participation, no agency, no place to flourish? Remember that I rescued you and delivered you to a place of flourishing. Because of this, steward my creation well and to make sure everyone flourishes. Another aspect of God's as creator was the command to worship the Lord God alone. Israel had come from a place of spiritual oppression where the worship of other gods surrounded them. That was the environment. So to preserve and protect the freedom to worship Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, God commanded them to only worship him. Now, why was that so important? It's because who Israel worshipped would determine who Israel would become, who they would reflect. See, theology flows into how we treat others and how we view and use our resources. And if Israel began to worship other gods and these other gods had different value systems and different ethics, then they would begin to reflect those different value systems and different ethics rather than reflecting their God. So the worship of one God would preserve Israel as God's people and ensure that they reflected him 
as a God of creation, justice, mercy, and abundance. Israel knew God as the creator. They also knew him as merciful. So how did they reflect mercy in their practical lives? Well, they were to treat other people with compassion, dignity, and worth. That's how they reflected God's mercy. Let me go back to the gleaning laws again, since we've already looked at those. They provide us with just a glimpse into the dignity and compassion and worth that was expected of Israel in their treatment of others. In the gleaning laws, those who were vulnerable and who were struggling were treated with dignity. The vulnerable, those who were most likely to be exploited in society, participated in the harvest. They participated in the community. You know, at harvest time in agrarian society, everybody came together. They focused on getting the harvest in before it was too late. The community worked together. They helped one another. But it would have been easy for them to further isolate the vulnerable by setting them aside, not letting them participate, and just giving them what they needed at the end of the day. But God commands that they participate. God commands that they are invited into the harvest They are dignified by being a part of the community rather than being isolated or shamed as those people who are struggling. Deuteronomy 24, we see a few more examples of how they were to reflect the God of mercy. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. When someone experienced financial struggle or was in a vulnerable situation, Israel could loan one another money, but there were strict commands about how that should be done to preserve the dignity and worth of other people. The lender didn't go into the house and decide what was collateral and take it. The the lender didn't get the um, privilege of going into the house and demeaning the borrower by coming to the house and taking whatever they wanted. Dignity and worth was preserved. The lender was commanded to remember the situation of difficulty that that person was in. And business couldn't eclipse dignity. Business dealings were not more important than the dignity of the person. Instead, God commanded compassion. Remember that the person's cloak is all they have at night when it's cold. So even if that cloak is the collateral for the loan that you gave that person, you have to give it back at the end of the day so they have something warm at night. Wages were to be paid at the end of the day because laborers needed their wages every day to pay food to their families. Compassion was expected even in their business dealings. Finally, the God of mercy is reflected in the love commands in Leviticus. 
In chapter 19, we find two defining commands to love. Verses 18, verse 18 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this call to love goes even further a little later in that chapter in verse 33. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Because Israel knew God as merciful, they were commanded to live beautiful lives of compassion and love that protected the dignity and worth of others. So we've talked about creator and we've talked about mercy. What about justice? How does Israel live out justice in their common life? There are a lot of places that we can go to to get an idea of how justice was lived out. But this morning, I want to offer you two principles for, for reflecting justice, protection and restoration. One of the fascinating aspects of Old Testament law is that there's an acknowledgement of sin, of the brokenness of humanity. The sacrificial system provided a temporary avenue for people to acknowledge their sin and to come to the Lord for forgiveness, even if their sin would not be fully dealt with until Christ's death and resurrection. The sacrificial system provided them this ongoing realization of their sin and their need for forgiveness. And in the same way, the law, the commands about their common life, recognizes and acknowledges brokenness in humanity. It recognizes the reality that inequity and disparity and injustice would certainly develop in their common life. It was going to happen. People would find themselves in difficult circumstances. Some people would become poor and be exploited, while others would become wealthy and create ways to maintain that wealth. And because of these tendencies and broken relationships, God commanded protection and restoration. Let's look at Leviticus 25. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner, and strangers so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. This is a text from the Jubilee chapter in Leviticus 25. It shows the reality of broken systems and broken humanity. Someone becomes poor and the command is first to show compassion. Help them just as you would a foreigner. I think it's great because the assumption is of course you're helping a foreigner who is vulnerable. So keep doing that even for your fellow Israelites, right? Show compassion first and then after compassion, comes protection of their involvement in the community. Poverty isolates people, removes them from participation in the community. And in this text, helping the poor has the goal of maintaining their participation in the community. Verse 36 goes even further to protection against exploitation. And that's justice. When a person needs a loan, don't take advantage of them 
by charging interest. Why? Oh, we all know why, right? Because of the heavy burden of interest when that gets involved and when that becomes entrenched. Because a person is already struggling, they can't pay back the loan and the interest. The burden's compounded and inequity grows and disparity grows. And as the verse says, this leads to the poor being isolated and disconnected from the community, from the benefits of society, and from divinely owned resources. And the system becomes entrenched. When interest, which is just one example, when interest or any other avenues of disparity become part of the equation, the already difficult circumstances of some are exploited, and what happens is the community gets out of whack. Right? The community gets out of whack. Biblical justice is in Israel's common life included protection against all of the things that would inevitably cause increasing disparity, exploitation, and isolation. The promised land was supposed to be about freedom and agency and flourishing. And all of the things that work against that, God commanded some protection. Not only was protection against exploitation and disparity built in to the expectation of common line, there were resets built in. Restoration. One of the most well-known resets are the Jubilee laws themselves. In the year of Jubilee, what happens? All debt was to be forgiven. Not just the interest, the whole thing was to be forgiven. All those people who had sold themselves into service in order to pay back debt, released. And all of the land that had been bought and sold over the previous 49 years got returned to the original owner. So everyone had access to livelihood. These were appropriate societal measures for Israel, an ancient and agrarian society, to restore a level of equity and community, to reset, to restore. They were appropriate measures for the time and the context to ensure that the benefits of society were shared and that all could flourish. The beauty of biblical justice is not that it's just about punishment for sin. It's about reflecting a God who's the creator, who's merciful, who's just, and who's abundant. And God is concerned that communities protect one another from exploitation, from isolation, from disparity. He's concerned that the effects of sin and brokenness are mitigated through resetting the parts that get out of whack from our brokenness and our sin. He's concerned that all flourish, all flourish. Which leads us to the final attribute that we've been talking about. Do you remember it? Creation, mercy, justice. All right, nicely done. Abundance. How did they experience the abundance of God? How was this translated into practical living? Going back to Walter Brueggemann's description of the movement in the Old Testament, right? They move from scarcity to abundance in the Exodus, and the final movement is a movement from abundance to neighborliness. If, 
Israel truly experienced God as a God of abundance, they wouldn't have any fear or anxiety about living in scarcity anymore. Fear of scarcity turns into hoarding of resources. But trust in abundance does the opposite. It enables generosity, neighborliness, grace, That's what the law did for Israel. It gave them a structure for neighborliness. It forced them to trust in God's abundance over and over again. You know, if I'm not sure that God's going to provide for me or I don't really trust that God is good or abundant, I'm tempted to hold tightly to what I have or to what I think I have or should have. I forget my call to steward resources for the benefit of others, and I hoard just as Pharaoh did in the famine, and just as some of us might have done with toilet paper in the pandemic, right? A great present-day reality of hoarding. But if I know that God is abundant, then I give generously to others. I can be neighborly in ways that are radical and gracious. Reflecting a God of abundance means being open-handed with resources, extending grace and giving someone what is needed, what is needed. Abundance allows me to see a world in need and respond in grace rather than fear. Trusting in a God that I know to be abundant enables me to protect others against exploitation because I'm not worried about my own flourishing. Trusting in an abundant God enables me to reset broken systems without focusing on what that might mean for me. Trusting in an abundant God means working to make sure everyone receives the benefit of society without anxiety that there won't be enough. If the God of Israel was a God of creation, mercy, justice, and abundance, then the image of the invisible God, his son, Jesus Christ, is also a God of creation, of mercy, of justice, and abundance. And that means the expectation is that his people, the church, reflect him the same way. And that's exactly what we find in the New Testament, right? In Luke 4, 17 to 19, you can look at your wall every week, right? This is the continuation of all that we have been talking about. Jesus at the synagogue at the beginning of his public ministry stands up and uses the words of Isaiah to say, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls his followers back to the heart of the law in reflection of God as creator, just, merciful, abundant. And he says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Children reflect their Father in heaven. As Christians, we have come to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as a creator, as merciful, just, and abundant in ways deeper and greater because of Christ. The mercy and abundance we've received and experienced through the forgiveness of sin and the radical grace of Jesus enables us to be neighborly to a world in need. That should go far beyond the commands to Israel the call to reflect mercy, justice, and abundance to the world hasn't gone away. It has deepened and expanded. But you know what? We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. We have the Holy Spirit. We're still called to this beautiful justice to protect the vulnerable against exploitation and isolation, to reset and restore broken systems so that all flourish to steward all of our resources for the benefit of the community, to ensure that all benefits of society are available to all, and to preserve the dignity and worth of each and every person. This is our story, and may it shape us and define us and change a world in need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for our redemption. Thank you that you have rescued your people from every form of oppression and help us to live that reality out in the world. I pray that this church would reflect you, Lord, that you would continue to anoint providence to reflect you as a God of creation, a just God, a merciful God, and an abundant God. Pour out your blessing and your spirit on this people that they might reflect you in every way in their community. May we be people of mercy and justice and abundance in our reflection of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.